This episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense. Stream is an expert interview transcript library with more than 10,000 interviews spanning across all industries, including tech, media, consumer goods, and plenty more. Not to mention 70% of these experts can be found only exclusively on Stream. Thanks to many of the interviews that I've read on Stream, I feel like I've gained a much more intimate understanding of the companies that I cover. And at this point, it has become an integral piece of my research process. So if you want to check out some of their transcripts, transcripts for yourself, you can go to streamrg.co slash CCM and sign up for a free 14-day trial using the promo code CCM. Again, that's streamrg.co slash CCM, S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G dot C-O slash CCM. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. This is our Thursday deep dive episode where we interview an analyst on a single stock. And today we're talking about NVIDIA with Luke Hallard, uh, lead advisor from our friends at Seven Investing. What were your highlights from the interview? Yeah. And we should mention that they are releasing their top 20 buys portfolio. And this is one of their teaser reports with that. And for good reason, NVIDIA is one of the largest chip makers in the world. They, uh, have a lock or not a lock they're the leader in gpus which are graph graphics processing units or i actually don't know what the g stands for i think it's graphic processing unit but they're key to a few big things the gaming market the data center market the ai industry potentially the autonomous driving industry and many other things down the road uh, and luke talks about them all including some of their software stuff cpus all that good stuff complicated company but a fun one to talk about all right, well, we don't need to go any longer. Uh, without further ado, here's the interview. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. Today, we are joined by Luke Hallard, first time guest uh, on the podcast. We've chatted with him a little bit before over uh, Twitter messages, but he's a lead advisor at Seven Investing. Um, and there's a recent announcement from Seven Investing called the Strong Buy Portfolio. I'm going to let you talk about that. But first of all, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. A pleasure to be here. I'm a big fan of Chit Chat Money, actually. So it's, uh, it's a bit of a thrill to be on and joining you both. Nice. There we nice. go. Love there we go. Love well, to have everyone uh, joining the show from time to time. All How's right. the, uh, so, so can you go through what the Strong Buy Portfolio is? Yeah, I'd love to. So I guess I joined Seven Investing as a lead advisor at the start of this year in January. Um, but the firm's been going for about two and a bit years now. And one of the criticisms we get from our subscribers pretty consistently is we've got like a ton of recommendations out there. There's like 150 different recommendations. And they felt our scorecard was getting a little bloated. And so subscribers wanted a way to identify and kind of hone in on what our favorite ideas were right now as a lead advisor team. So a couple of months ago, we started this and we started assigning conviction ratings to our recommendations and company updates, kind of conviction ratings, like strong buy, the stuff we really, really believe in, down to kind of potential sell. It's kind of on the chopping block to help our subscribers understand kind of our thoughts on the company from month to month. 
And then in June, we took all of our strong buy stocks, our highest conviction picks, and we methodically forced rank them as a lead advisor team. So kind of seven investing. So on seven, seven, we, uh, we launched our strong buy portfolio. So that's our 20 highest conviction ideas from all of those strong buy recs. And really, you know, it's a great place for new seven investing subscribers to start if they're building their own portfolio, but also for seasoned investors who are maybe thinking about concentrating the portfolio a little bit. Um, and I suppose the reason you guys have invited me here today is to chat about one of the companies I'm really close to and a real fan of, NVIDIA. So NVIDIA, it's actually a, a recent addition to my own personal portfolio, but it's one of the stocks that I really push to get into the strong buy portfolio. I really feel it deserves a place in Seven Investing's top 20. And, uh, how did you even, I guess, when did you first come across NVIDIA? Uh, maybe you'd heard about it before, but as an investment. Yeah, so I guess I, you're right. Like I'm, I'm a bit of a gamer, so I'm kind of familiar with NVIDIA. I thought I knew what they did. And, um, and, and it's only really I really started looking at a bit more detail when the valuation started to get a little bit more sensible in the last five or six months that actually I realized I had a really wild misconception about the company. So why don't we go into that a little bit, you know, kind of who are they and what do we do? And they'll, we'll clear out that misconception, perhaps for anyone who's listening. So... Oh, well, just, do you want to go into, I guess, briefly what they do? Yeah. So um, I suppose you might think of, and I, I did think of NVIDIA as being like this firm that makes graphics cards for computer games. And like, you're not wrong. Historically, that's been their biggest revenue segment. It's where the company started. And they are number one in PC gaming. They've got like three times the revenue of their nearest similar competitor, AMD. But gaming is really not where the company's future lies. So really, my whole thesis in investing in NVIDIA is really around the NVIDIA-powered next-generation data centers, um, which are becoming, you might call, the AI factories of the future, accelerating machine learning, accelerating deep learning, and training and refining AI models. This is really really quite exciting. So if we really you know, say, what do NVIDIA really do? They're not about gaming. They're about pioneering accelerated computing to help solve the world's most challenging computational problems. Right. And that is a great elevator, elevator pitch. I know for anyone that's not well-versed in the semiconductor industry, you're probably confused listening to this. We're going to get into all the specific details later. But first, I want to talk about and just give an overview on the unit economics because they're a design only chip maker. And I think this is one of the most important parts for understanding the basics of NVIDIA's business. So what are NVIDIA's major costs and what are their general margins, gross operating cash flow? Yeah, okay, let's get into it. But maybe just one 30 quick second sidebar because I think we should give a little bit more frame. So um, let's just talk briefly about where the revenue comes from. And that'll give us a bit of context when we talk about kind of where they spend their money. So. Really, they get their revenue in four segments, and we'll go into much more detail later in the discussion, I'm sure. But about half, kind of 44% of their revenue comes from that gaming division. They're essentially selling graphics cards, um, but you do some interesting other stuff with those as well that we'll get into. 45% of their revenue now, so it's just overtaken gaming, is that data center segment. And so these are these AI factories. But then there are other two other interesting little segments, and I'm sure we'll talk about those too. One is something called 
professional visualization. So NVIDIA have got something they call the Omniverse. It's basically kind of a bunch of tools and an environment where other companies can build digital twins and kind of train their own robots, kind of simulate their factories. And NVIDIA, quite excitingly, have got quite a uh, an early step into automotive. So actually they're embedded with uh, almost basically every auto autonomous car manufacturer that's not kind of Tesla or Waymo. Almost everybody else is working with NVIDIA to build their autonomous platform. So we've got a sense there of kind of what they do, relatively diverse. I mean, they're kind of embedded in every industry. Um, so now I think we can probably dive in a little bit to kind of where they spend their money. So as unit economics. Um, so maybe let's start with kind of big picture, how much money do they make? So in the last full year of reporting, they delivered revenues of $27 billion, which is up 61% year over year. And let's just think about that in context of kind of how big the company is. They're like, I think today they're like the world's 12th biggest company, market cap of about $400 billion. So to be up at that kind of strata of size and delivering 61% year over year revenue growth, that's that's kind of special. Um, but But where do they spend their money? So cost of revenue is about $9.4 billion in that last full year. And that was up 54% year over year. So maybe the first kind of reflection is we're starting to see cost efficiencies in the business model. Now the company, you know, it's a 20 something year old company. They're they're pretty mature now. They've really got a, a, you know, a nice way of operating. And so they're growing revenues at 61% year over year, but cost of revenue is only going up 54% year over year. So we're starting to see like the first glimmers of those cost efficiencies. And um, I think we should understand, you hinted at it just now, we should understand kind of why they can be efficient. And it really is, it's their, it's their manufacturing model. So you look at the sector, semiconductors in the NASDAQ where NVIDIA sit, and typically in that sector, you've got companies like Taiwan Semi and Intel who are actually, you know, they've got factories, kind of fabrication plants, and they're making the chips. Well, there's also two other companies in that sector, NVIDIA and one of their key competitors is AMD, and they off, they operate what's called a fabless business model. So they basically do the design of their chips, and then they outsource the fabrication to those other guys who do the manufacturing. So that's quite a nice model, right? Because they don't have this huge capex to kind of set up the factories Sure, they have to kind of forecast demand because they've got a plan like 12 months ahead to get orders in and have kind of their um, their goods ready to sell into the market. Um, but they can be very flexible and they can change the kind of product mix from year to year without having to like massively retool because that cost is all borne by the uh, manufacturers. Um, so let's, let's sort of drill through the numbers a little bit then. So kind of because of that model, what it means is NVIDIA have got a really high gross margin compared to you know almost every other company in the same segment. So their most recent full year gap gross margin was 65.5%. It's actually quite a big number. I'm um, comparing that to those two other competitors, AMD and Intel. Intel 54%. It's quite impressive actually because they do their own manufacturing. AMD 49%. So kind of a, you know a much more efficient model than AMD for manufacturing. Um, and where do they spend that money? I mean, essentially, it's kind of, you know, ordering the inventory, um, uh, manufacturing support. You know, they've got some of their own 
kind of labour and overheads. And there's also kind of costs associated with managing an inventory of, um, of cards. Actually, um, I know there's a kind of supply chain concerns right now around this space, but in inventory provisions aren't killing them. I think we could see some problems on the horizon. We'll come to that a bit later in the discussion. But right now, inventory provisions are around 1.3% of revenues. So relatively modest cost. Yeah, and, and maybe if we can we uh what is inventory provisions uh can you give a definition there I, I, so they don't break it out in a 10k i think these are the costs associated with kind of building a pipeline and maybe they've got like chips sat in their own factory in their own kind of uh distribution chain ready to go out but this is the kind of the cost um on their at their off a cost of goods sold to kind of manage that inventory gotcha gotcha all right continue sorry go down the operating or the income statement. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, so I guess, yeah, as you said, operating expenses next. So, um, so total operating expenses for the last fiscal year was $7.4 billion up 27% year over year. So again, we're still seeing, you know, increasingly the efficiency as they scale up. Um, and then because they don't have, you know, all of these factories and they don't have all of the kind of hardcore manufacturing themselves. So for them, their OPEX is primarily R&D costs, which is about 20% of revenue, and then SG&A costs, which tend to be kind of 8 to 10% of, uh, of revenues. And when I looked at AMD and Intel, you know, that's pretty typical. But really, um, you know, because of that efficiency in the model, um, they're able to achieve a much higher operating margin than their competitors. So NVIDIA, in the most recent um, earnings report, operating margin of just over 38% compared to AMD's 20% and Intel's 25%. So we're really seeing quite a significant delta there. And that, actually, when I dug into the company, you know, I was always re almost reminded of Apple in some ways. So if we think about NVIDIA's um, consumer-facing segment of graphics cards, it's kind of the same model as Apple with their iPhones, right? They design something, somebody else manufactures it, and then it gets into consumers' hands. Well, you know, we think of Apple as being this highly efficient machine, but I, actually, you know, comparing Apple's operating margin to NVIDIA, NVIDIA 38%, Apple just under 31%. So, you know, they've really got this model ironed out quite well, I think. If you're listening to this ad right now, we know you're already a listener to our show, but for our avid listeners, we've also started a paid membership service called Chit Chat Money Plus that extends beyond just our podcast. Every Tuesday, subscribers get access to one not-so-deep-dive research episode that covers everything you need to know about a company. You also get an email newsletter with our written show notes, important charts, a transcript of each show, and access to our Chit Chat Money research files. Chit Chat Money Plus costs $5 a month. You can subscribe directly through Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or if you listen on another platform, click the link in the show notes to go through the simple steps of signing up. If you're a regular listener to the show, we think the membership will provide tons of additional value. On top of the stock research episodes, members will get one Arch Capital Fund episode a month where we outline why we bought, sold, or continue to hold a stock in the Arch Capital Investment Fund, along with shows on our broader investment strategy. Sign up and become a Chit Chat Money Plus subscriber today. We can't wait for you to join our community. We're going to see, I think we're going to see some problems in the immediate term. So um, one thing NVIDIA tried to do a couple of years ago, I think 2020, uh, they tried to acquire Arm, who are a British company, 
I'm really a leader in building CPUs, which is kind of a different type of processor to a GPU, which is what NVIDIA specialized in. And um, th that, unfortunately, that acquisition uh, was prevented by regulators, uh, seen as kind of anti-competitive. And so um, they've kind of thrown in the towel on that. They've announced that formally fairly recently, and they're taking a $1.35 billion kind of write down as a result of that failed acquisition. So we're going to see that in the next quarter's earnings, which I think get reported in August. So I think we expect to see like a short term headwind on some of those margins, but, um, but that's kind of a one-time cost. Okay. And then you alluded to two of the big segments, which are gaming and data centers. Mm -hmm. What has, what's allowed them to, I guess, win customers in those markets. And then, yeah. You mentioned the graphics cards, and this is kind of a basic question, but could you describe what those, what a graphics card is and uh, why it's valuable to gamers? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so, um, so I guess NVIDIA invented GPUs, graphics processing units, and they launched the first consumer card in 1999. So I've mentioned kind of CPUs and GPUs. Let's kind of explain the difference. So, um, so a CPU is kind of the engine room of your computer. And CPUs are typically highly optimized to do an incredible rate, but kind of do kind of processing in series, like do step A, step B, step D, but you know, billions and billions of these things very, very quickly. Um, GPUs are a bit different. GPUs have what's called, they have lots and lots of cores, kind of mini processors. So instead of doing A, then B, then C, they can do A, B, and C all at the same time. So individually, each step is a little bit slower than the equivalent step on a CPU, which is highly optimized to run that stuff in sequence, but it's doing like tens of thousands of these things in parallel um, on the latest architectures, you know, far more than that. So what that means is if you've got certain types of processing, GPUs are like way, way more efficient. And so when we talk about gaming, um, the key thing is, you know, you, I don't know if you guys play computer games, maybe you've watched, you know, movies and special effects. Um, stuff is becoming so much more lifelike and realistic. And almost now on latest versions of like Unreal Engine with the latest GPUs, almost indiscernible from like a real scene. It looks like reality. And the reason for that is, is when you're kind of rendering, when you're sort of building the, the picture to go on the screen, um, that's highly parallelizable. You can do like each pixel you can kind of do all at the same time. So GPU is perfect for that kind of processing, but it's also perfect for lots of other types of processing, which is why, excuse me, why the CEO Jensen Huang describes the company as a kind of universal accelerator, because it can take certain kinds of processing and just do it way quicker than a CPU. And Oh, that, that makes sense. I appreciate the explainer. And how have they been able to succeed and, and win over customers? And who are their customers, I guess? Yeah. yeah. Um, so if we stick, let's, let's go through each of the four segments, but we'll start with gaming. So their customers are gamers. Um, also cryptocurrency miners. I guess we'll come on to that a little bit later in the discussion. So if you want to run a computer game on your PC, um, then if you're initially running something that's really quite low power, maybe, you know, five-year-old, 10-year-old game, you're going to want what's called a dedicated GPU. You literally buy this chunk of hardware and you stick it in the back of your PC and that's that's the graphics processing unit that does all the hard, the heavy lifting to give you this kind of fantastic visual experience. Um, so 
really there are two manufacturers in this space, which are, which are the sort of AMD and NVIDIA. And they've actually kind of jostled and they've changed places over the years. They've both got a long history, um, um, but currently AMD are prevailing. And there's a, there's a good reason for that. You know, AMD have got something like 80% of the market of kind of these dedicated GPUs. And the real reason for that is really it's that 20% that they spend on R&D. Like they've led with innovation. And I'll probably pick on two things. I won't go super deep into what they are, but let's just talk at a high level and it'll give you a good example of why they're kind of winning here. So, you know, not only were NVIDIA the first guys to launch a GPU back in the 90s, but the biggest kind of revolution in this whole space was in 2018. So NVIDIA released hardware on a kind of two-year cycle. And we're coming up this year to release of what they call the 40 series processors. But back in 2018, it was the 20 series. And so on the 20 series processors, what they enable were two uh, really major innovations. And that, that got all the gamers kind of wanting to use their cars because um, they were just, just delivering better results. And those two innovations, one was something called real-time ray tracing. So that's basically... Um, the graphics card is effectively kind of simulating the real physics of light. So you get like perfect reflections and refractions and shadows and stuff just looks real. And prior to real-time ray tracing, if you wanted to do this stuff in a game, like in real time, you'd have to fake it um, with something called rasterization. It's, it took AMD a long time to catch up with that. Really, they didn't have an equivalent solution available till about 2020. So, um, um, so you know, they got there much quicker. Um, and then the other thing that NVIDIA pioneered on, and actually AMD don't really have an answer to even today, um, back in 2018, they launched something called Deep Learning Super Sampling. So kind of a bit of a mouthful. What does it mean? Um, if you, maybe you've got your TV in the lounge, it might be like a 4K TV, you know, my laptop's a 4K laptop. Well, that's a lot of pixels. You have to kind of work out what they look like to render the picture for the screen. So you kind of have one frame of the game. Well, in deep learning super sampling, what's happening is the game itself can render at, say, 1080, like a lower resolution, and then the AI can look at what's happened in the last couple of frames. And because it's like it's been an AI, it's a machine learning algorithm that's trained to kind of render the next frame, it can kind of fill in the gaps. And so it can kind of guess at what the, all the other pixels should look like. So it moves a lot of the workload away from generating the original picture because it kind of gets upscaled using AI. And what AMD do today is they have a kind of similar thing that they call um, FSR, but again, they're kind of faking it. They're not really using AI. They're not looking at the last couple of frames. They're basically just kind of upscaling it and trying to like tighten the edges and make things look a bit sharper. So today, I think serious gamers who are really, you know, into trying to get like, the, you know, the best quality experience are really sticking with NVIDIA. Okay, and two follow-ups on that. Does this software-hardware combination, is that kind of where you think the long-term competitive advantage with NVIDIA lies? And two, does this, uh, what is it, deep super sampling? I, I forget the acronym. Uh, does that make them more attractive for, say, a PlayStation, Xbox, or a Nintendo hardware makers, or even, a who I guess, there's Steam any anyone making hardware for games does that make Nvidia more attractive than say an AMD? Uh, it is. I, I'm, I don't. I don't recall now. They're in one of the consoles. Might be Nintendo or one of the others. But um, but yeah, I mean they they certainly got the best hardware. I suppose 
AMD have tried to compete more in the gaming segment on price delivering. They're kind of seen as a little bit like the budget option. Gotcha. So, um, so that that's really the kind of differentiator. But um, you know, I, I don't think though that gaming. I mean, it's, it has been their biggest segment as a company for a long time. I really don't think that's the future of the company. I think this is now starting to be eclipsed by the other biggest revenue segment, which is data center. Um, and that's that's really a data center is really the foundation of my investment thesis. Right. And who are the customers in the data center? I'm assuming it's like an Amazon and a, and a Microsoft, stuff like that. Uh, yeah, almost, well, almost all of the cloud providers buy NVIDIA kit. Some of them are now making their own silicon, but um, but NVIDIA are also launching like their own data centers, their own data center on a chip architecture. And uh, one of the things I looked at when I was researching the company was um, there's a there's a list of the world's top 500 supercomputers, and um, a number of those are are accelerated using GPUs, so technology like the technology Nvidia produces. Well, 168 of them are of those top 500 are powered by GPUs. Out of those 168, 157 of those are Nvidia. Um, and um, probably if we pick on two sort of notable installations that are coming up, uh, Meta, Facebook are launching the research supercomputer based on Nvidia's current um, architecture. And that's so they can build the metaverse. That's going to be a beast of an installation. But NVIDIA themselves are anticipated to launch something called EOS, which is expected to be the world's fastest AI supercomputer when it comes online, expected sort of towards the end of this year. So, you know, not only are they selling kit to all of the clouds, you know, anyone who wants to build their own data center, but they're also building their own hardware at the same time. So then when they build their supercomputer, EOS, uh, I know they have the strange ac- uh, names for everything, but yeah. is it say like a, a research lab or uh, an individual company can license that time from them and use the super fast computer to do research, uh, all that good stuff? Yeah, exactly. You can run your workloads on their supercomputer installation. That'd be things like the Omniverse maybe, um, but also actually game streaming. You know, we talked there about that gaming segment. Maybe you've got a bit of a weedier PC or you're running on a laptop you haven't got the hardware, well, actually, you can still stream a game and um, there's kind of an NVIDIA uh, game streaming option. So I imagine they'll be using things like EOS to run those streaming workloads. So kind of, you know, my game is being rendered in the cloud rather than locally on my laptop. Right. And I guess we want to talk, we want to get past gaming, but I have one more follow-up on the gaming segment. And it is the transition to streaming gaming, or I guess, for anyone that maybe wants an analogy here, the Netflixification of gaming, we know Microsoft is going into that, NVIDIA is trying as well. Does Is that a growth driver for them? Or I guess, does that revenue end up in the data center part of the segment, but it's also powering a lot of gaming companies? Does that make sense at all? Uh, yeah, it does. I think that falls under the gaming segment. Okay. Um, okay. But ultimately, I think you know many of these different verticals may be leveraging the same hardware and the same installations behind the scenes. Gotcha, I, I know one of the gaming streaming, probably the most prominent gaming streaming company or who's been the most clear about their intentions, I think is Microsoft with their Xbox streaming solution. I know they just announced that there's going to be a console-less uh, experience. It's kind of in beta mode right now. They're, they're rolling. Yeah. Is that, would that be a customer or would that be more uh, of a competitor in that sense? 
so I don't think Microsoft make their own silicon. Um, and certainly they are one of NVIDIA's customers at a kind of data center level. So, you know, a lot of Azure, Microsoft's cloud is built on NVIDIA hardware. So I, I can't say with certainty, to be honest, but, um, you know, they've, they've certainly got a chunk of NVIDIA um, processing that they could be streaming that Xbox experience from. Okay. And we hit the big things, you know, gaming and data centers, that's a big chunk of revenue right now. But there are some other stuff we've been talking about uh, or messaging on before the show. And I want to hit on these three things. We already talked about the supercomputers, but there's Omniverse Automotive, which is very small. But again, we all know the, the long-term potential of autonomous driving. And then the uh, CPU, uh, I forget all the names of this stuff. They have so many different products, yeah. but the CPU stuff as well. So first, let's hit Omniverse. What's, yeah. What is that? Like, it, it, I don't know. I, I, I tried to look what it is. I have no idea what it is. What is it? Who are they trying to displace? <laughs> what market are they trying to go after? So, uh, so yeah, just remember those numbers, right? Um, data center and uh, gaming are the two, you know, they're the really material drivers of revenue right now. It, but visualization is kind of the next chunk. It's, it's much smaller in comparison, though. Um, so what is Omniverse? Um, it's kind of a virtual world. I guess everyone's talking about the metaverse, right? So um, the metaverse could be lots of different things. You could think of the omniverse as kind of being a metaverse for industry. So maybe let's give a, a real example. Um, so Amazon have partnered with NVIDIA to use the NVIDIA omniverse to optimize their warehouse design and train their robots. So actually what they've built is what's called a digital twin of some of their warehouses and then probably sort of two things that they would use the Omniverse for. Um, one would be, say they're thinking, oh, how do we bring in like a new product line or optimize the warehouse and the flow of people and robots? Or they could redesign it in the Omniverse and then kind of, you know, hit go and run it and watch these like virtual robots run around and watch the kind of virtual orders coming in and getting packaged and going out. And then they can iterate virtually and they don't have to spend a fortune kind of building something that's suboptimal. Um, but they could also use it to train the robots themselves. So what the Omniverse really is, it's like a bunch of tools with, you know, fantastic sort of visualization, but all the real world physics. So, you know, if you build a kind of uh, the AI, you're trying to train your robot to live in and operate in the real world. Maybe it's like a little Amazon, like little floor drone thing running around, picking up and dropping down shelves where you can train that in the Omniverse and the tool set has just done a lot of the heavy lifting for you. Um, so it makes it much easier for companies to build kind of industrial applications. That's kind of what it's all about. I don't know if that uh, sort of cut through the complexity. Well, of is, is it a software subscription or are they doing like, I guess maybe uh, Amazon's probably an enterprise partnership, but are they, is it offered as a software subscription? Uh, yes. So you can, so anyone can download and install the Omniverse and Actually, I don't know the commercial model, so I imagine there's, yeah, there's some kind of subscription element and it will be based on like processing volume, something like that. But, right. yeah, um, when was it released? Like, I know it's really new, so they're still kind of building this out. Yeah, they are. It's, uh, it's relatively recent, but it's, uh, it's been appearing in their numbers for at least the last uh, eight quarters, I think. Okay, gotcha. Only eight quarters. All right, let's move to automotive, unless you have anything else in the Omniverse. Um, that yeah. is a... It's I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but when I look, I say, you, you look at the numbers, it's way, way smaller than data centers right now. But yeah. we know the potential of autonomous vehicles. What exactly are they doing at automotive? Because I know they're not making the cars, 
Is it software and hardware? What's their goal here? Yeah, exactly. It's both. It's software and hardware. So, um, you know, if you're uh, if you're Tesla and you know you vertically integrated the whole thing, and you're building the cars, and you're actually you're building your own silicon, and you're building like the uh, the machine learning, like the AI that's going to do the driving. Um, well, you can you can kind of afford to do all that because you've got that kind of culture of innovation. You've got that insight in house. If you're like a Land Rover or a Mercedes, it's a bit of a stretch to go from being like a car manufacturer to being an AI expert and building your autonomous driving platform. So what almost literally almost every other manufacturer apart from Tesla and Google's Waymo have done is engaged with NVIDIA um, to partner with them and NVIDIA are actually building the autonomous driving platform. So the hardware, the sensors to plug into it, but then the most complex bit, the software, and then that will talk to the car and tell it, you know, speed up, slow down, turn left, turn right. And if we just think about some stats here, so evidently uh, in the most recent uh, earnings release, they shared some stats. They said NVIDIA is currently in 20 of the top 30 passenger electric vehicles, seven of the top 10 autonomous trucks, eight of 10 robo taxis, and all 30 data centers that are doing autonomous driving training. So I guess they've, you know, they're including Tesla there right now because perhaps they haven't got their own silicon across the line just yet. So as you, as you said, it's like a tiny fraction of revenue. It's like 1.7% of revenue right now. But, and this has got to be a super long-term bet, right? At least I've got a Tesla on the driveway. Like it's not very smart. It's the, it's the pinnacle of AI on the road, but it's pretty dumb when you're not on a highway on like a big road. Um, I think realistically, I got my SpaceX t-shirt on right now. I'm a Musk fan, but realistically, we're probably a long way from autonomous vehicles being uh, a reliable reality where you could take the steering wheel away. Um, so, you know, I don't think this is going to be material to NVIDIA for quite a long time, perhaps not before the 2030s. But I mean, if it gets there and it could come to nothing, well, this could be like a trillion dollar industry in itself. If you imagine that's like NVIDIA, not just uh, providing the kind of hardware, but I suppose the recurring revenue of uh, managing every single car on the road that's not a Tesla or a Waymo car. Gotcha. And there's seems like they're trying to set themselves up for the future there. Have they mentioned how much the current R&B is going into like automotive research? Because that can maybe be masking, you know, the, the, the true profitability of the data center business. Yes, that's a good good question, actually. They don't share that breakout, but they have said, at least on the revenue side, like it's tiny today, but they've got something like an $11 billion design win pipeline over the next six years. So they definitely see the revenue in this area accelerating, but no, I don't know how much of that is is the kind of R&D spend. But I suppose one thing to think about is, you know, these aren't all um, totally separate there's definitely like overlaps between all these different elements of R&D. So it's not, it's not you've got these four completely disconnected teams. Right. And there's like the, the omniverse AI training, you know, leads into the autonomous stuff as well. All right. Last segment uh, or different product line, they just, and again, I forget all the names of their products, but they launched a CPU, I believe. I don't know if it's commercially available yet, but this is a big leap outside of the GPU. And as we know from Intel's market cap, the CPU market is still quite large. What's their goal there? Do you think they can win a lot of customers in the CPU market? 
Yeah, so it's interesting. So I, I suppose a little while ago we mentioned the failed ARM acquisition. So ARM were, you know, this industry-leading guys with CPUs. So they took the billion-dollar write-down, but they have kept a strong partnership with ARM. So they've got a 20-year license now to use ARM's um, IP to build really a, a range of CPUs. So the main CPU that they're building right now is part of their data center segment. It's something called Grace. And so they're building, don't want to go too deep down the kind of rabbit hole of the hardware, but their latest um, hardware platform data centers is something called Grace Hopper. So kind of the Grace CPU from ARM and then their Hopper architecture for kind of putting it all together. And you know when, when, that's, when that stuff comes online fairly soon, it's going to be, I think, a 30 times improvement in performance compared to their current iteration of hardware, Amphere. Um, but because they've, so they've, you know, they've already extracted a lot of value out of that ARM license in the data center segment, but they've got the license. So, you know, who's to say that they won't build um, a complete range of CPUs, you know, maybe for laptops, for PCs, maybe even for mobile phones. So that is quite interesting. Um, it's particularly interesting, actually, when we think about their manufacturing model, because um, at the moment they're using... Taiwan Semi and Samsung for the manufacturing, well, they've got a conversation open evidently with Intel right now, potentially to partner with Intel to build uh, their hardware as well, which is going to be really, you know, it's going to be great in terms of de-risking some of the concerns that we'll come on to in a bit. Um, but quite interesting that they've got this ARM license, you know, maybe they're going to partner with Intel, but at the same time, perhaps start to compete with them for CPUs. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Right. And Intel's moving to the foundry business, so they might be okay with, you know, offsetting some of that demand as well. Yeah. And I suppose actually even right today, um, I'm probably not bang up to the minute on the news, but I think there's this chips bill being debated right now in the US. So something like a $52 billion subsidy package to try and build um, like a, you know, strengthen US manufacturing of semiconductors. Well, like a big chunk of that $52 billion looks like it's going to go to Intel. So that's going to help Intel kind of scale out. Um, so, you know, great partnership for NVIDIA if they get that operational, because it's going to allow them to kind of de-risk some of their exposure to Taiwan Semi. What is their relationship? You just mentioned it. What is their relationship like with Taiwan Semi? Do you see that as, I guess, what are the positives and negatives of it? Yeah. So um, so I think it's, it's good and it's strong. We have seen some... Um, some, some sort of insights into perhaps what's happening behind the scenes right now. So, I mean, first thing I suppose there is, you know, the partnership with Taiwan Semi is fundamental to the way NVIDIA operates because, you know, that is their fabulous business model, which are all those financial benefits we talked about at the top of the discussion. But at the same time, it's this massive risk right now for NVIDIA. So I dug through their recent 10K. So that was only a few months ago. They said, oh, our manufacturing is performed by Taiwan Semi and Samsung. And then we have a bunch of other companies to do assembly. Um, well, actually, I saw, a, I saw a kind of in the rumor mill in the kind of tech news a few days ago that there may have been a falling out between NVIDIA and Samsung. So it's possible, actually, this, this one particular person believes that now nearly 100% of their manufacturing is happening through Taiwan Semi foundries. So that's a you know, that's kind of a key supplier risk there. There's obviously, you know, the geopolitical situation between the US and China, you know, bad things could happen if suddenly 
uh, NVIDIA lose access to TSMC, well, that could be a major problem for the company, clearly. So I do like the attempts to kind of broaden out with Intel. How, yeah, how difficult would it be for them to switch to another foundry? Well, I don't think Intel can do the, the five nanometer and seven nan. Well, can they do, you probably know if they can do seven nanometer, but the, I don't even know if they can make it right now, right? Yeah, perhaps not. And it's going to take them a long time to kind of scale up. And let's not forget, it's, it's kind of, I think it's kind of a 12 month lead time to go from like design to actually having the chips being manufactured. I guess the, you know, the, the foundry has to kind of tool up to, to deliver that new design. So like if they, I, I doubt it would really happen, right? Because prob- I mean, if, if, if bad things happen between the US and China and TSMC, you know, if Taiwan was annexed, for example, there's probably bigger things for investors to worry about than kind of what's happening with NVIDIA. But um, yeah, it's going to put like a major supply chain problem for them that could kind of, you know, put the company on its knees for a good six to 12 months while they ramp up production with an alternative. But, you know, on the good side, at least they haven't got this CapEx invested that's potentially at risk. I mean, it's just a case of kind of moving their supply to another manufacturer. Right. Could be some short-term risk, but eventually they'll figure it out because they do have the best products. All right. Here's a maybe easy, I don't know if this is an easier one to a risk to talk about, but NVIDIA has exposure to the cryptocurrency market. Can you explain why everyone in the crypto market loves NVIDIA chips or GPUs, excuse me? And how do you try to look at that? Because it can be so cyclical, it can be so unpredictable. Yep. Okay. So maybe let's start with kind of why are we even talking about these two things in the same sentence? Um, So if I kind of wind back, we talked about GPUs were built for gaming, but they do this highly parallelizable processing, kind of A, B, and C all at the same time. So the way cryptocurrencies originally worked, if you think about the original cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, and then the second biggest cryptocurrency, Ethereum, well, without, without doing like a whole episode, like an hour on crypto, basically you've got this distributed ledger and part of, of the, not all of the complexity, part of the complexity is getting everybody who's involved in the network to have consensus, basically agree with a single version of the truth. So the way that was created with Bitcoin and originally with Ethereum was an algorithm called proof of work. So what proof of work is, it requires the miner, the guy who's trying to sort of create cryptocurrency, and there's millions of these people around the world, um, to do really a vast quantity of processing to solve a mathematical puzzle. That's what cryptocurrency mining is. Basically, you're doing like a load of maths to try and figure out the answer to a question, and then you'll kind of win, inverted commas, the next uh, block in the chain, like the next Bitcoin. Um, So these mathematical puzzles, it turns out, are highly parallelizable. So GPUs are perfect for running this kind of uh, processing. So what it meant was cryptocurrency miners kind of went crazy and started buying up all of those graphics cards from AMD and NVIDIA that were initially targeted for gamers. And the crypto miners went out and bought them because they they had like a massive arbitrage. You know, they buy the gaming card and then they could generate much more value from that card than the cost of the card plus the kind of electricity to power it. So that's, so we, we had this sort of, you know, hump as, as kind of the value of crypto mining goes up and down um, where uh, a lot of cards have been owned by crypto miners. Now, right now, the value of cryptocurrency is down along with growth stocks. Um, 
but also something interesting is happening with one of them, Ethereum. It's kind of the second biggest cryptocurrency. What Ethereum is doing is moving on, kind of evolving from proof of work, and they're going to adopt something called proof of stake. And the difference there is um, you don't have to do all that crazy math. There's a kind of different algorithm, different way of working out consensus, getting agreement. And so suddenly, if you, it, and this is due to happen, it's thought sort of later in 2022, but I think, I think there's no firm date just yet. There's still a bunch of complexity to be ironed out. But when, um, when this does take place, when the merge happens and Ethereum moves off of proof of work to proof of stake, kind of all these guys that are doing Ethereum mining, their hardware's wasted. So what's happening already is all these Ethereum miners are seeing this coming and they're starting to dump their graphics, their GPU cards on you know, eBay and Newegg and other markets. They're just trying to sell them because they're, they're going to be valueless to them at some point in the future. And so this creates a big problem for NVIDIA and I guess for AMD too, because um, you know, not only have they got this sudden boost in the secondhand market, but also kind of retail prices are being impacted because you've got all these used cards coming onto the market. So, um, so that's, I see that as a short-term headwind, um, but, but definitely, you know, that's something that, that you have to think about when you're sort of thinking about the valuation of NVIDIA, perhaps over the short to medium term. What percentage of the revenue is, or do you know, I guess they don't give it out, but have you seen any data on what percentage of the revenue comes from crypto? Um, so that they wouldn't, but it would come from the gaming segment because it's like someone's bought the gaming GPU, but they're using it for mining rather than for playing games. So it's in that kind of, you know, big chunk of revenue. All right. All right. That makes sense. What, what threat is there from uh, companies making the chips in house like Amazon? Do you see that as a big risk or is it, or, or, or is NVIDIA competitively advantaged enough that it, it doesn't seem practical for everyone to do that. I mean, it's certainly not practical for everybody to kind of do a Tesla and go and manufacture their own hardware. It's quite complex. Um, and, you know, either you need like a fabulous model and you engage with the same, you know, TSMCs and, and Samsungs, or you need to build your own foundries. Um, so, you know, NVIDIA are in every data center. Um, perhaps they're going to lose some of that processing. Um, I suppose some examples that we do know about, um, Amazon uh, have got their own line of silicon they're working on right now. I think something called Tranium. Um, Meta evidently are also having some success with their own silicon. Um, but I mean, to me, this is such a big market and it's going to grow at such a rate. You know, I think 61% um, growth in the data center segment in the most recent quarter. Um, no, that may be sure. I think it's 83% growth in the most recent quarter. Like this doesn't have to be a winner, like a single winner scenario. There's room for everybody to profit. And, you know, AMD and NVIDIA, I think are going to do very well. And I guess, yeah, I was thinking about that because you see the headlines from Amazon, you're like, whoa, this could be a big risk here. But that happened. And I know it wasn't specifically NVIDIA's customers, but Apple went in-house um, a few years back. They're the largest customer for Taiwan Semi but yet NVIDIA still found the market out there. So I think, you know, that, that, that fear might be overblown. This is just such a, such a big market. And speaking of that, like you mentioned before, NVIDIA is one of the largest companies in the world. When I wrote it down, it said the market cap was 377 billion, but I think stocks have kind of bumped higher. So we're closer to 400 billion now. Uh, how, 
at this price, how do you think about the valuation kind of looking, you know, three, five, maybe even longer years out? Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's a hard one, especially in the, you know, there's so much uncertainty in the current market, but let, let's try and put a few stakes in the ground. But I'm not going to try and put hard numbers to any of this really. Um, but let, maybe let's start with, you know, their revenue today, $27 billion a year. Um, and the data center revenue was up 83% year over year. And that data center revenue is kind of like a CAGR of 66% over the last five years. So that's not like an immediate, a recent bump, like it's consistently growing at a crazy rate. Um, so, and, and you know, what's the terminal rate of this stuff as well? Like to my mind, there's probably decades of growth at this rate in data centers before NVIDIA starts to reach kind of saturation. There is such a demand for this kind of processing. Um, so, um, you know, so, I th- so it's, and data center has just become the biggest revenue segment. I think it's going to become increasingly so. Um, and then maybe another little sort of short to medium term stake in the ground. So, um, like we know a few of the negative effect, uh, negative impacts coming over the next couple of quarters. So we've already had that $1.35 billion write down because of the acquisition, um, but also uh, kind of tail end of the pandemic plus exiting their Russia custom, like Russia business. So NVIDIA are forecasting a $500 million headwind because of Russia and specifically China COVID lockdown because um, um, China is quite a big market for the company. Um, and so uh, so I think we're going to see we're going to see a decline over the next couple of quarters while that has to wash through the same as this kind of big unknown of proof of stake, you know, all of these used graphics cards coming onto the market, probably, you know, continuing to have a kind of headwind on the gaming segment regular revenue. So I would imagine, you know, that the sort of downward impacts on gaming are not going to be offset by the upward impacts on data center over the next couple of quarters. It's probably a little bit of pain to work through. But when we think about really the long term of this stuff, you know, I suppose we used to say every company is a tech company. Well, I mean, it's very real to say really every company is now an AI company. And with their data center segment, NVIDIA have put themselves at the forefront of artificial intelligence, like cutting edge hardware and software that's powering innovation across almost every segment of industry in our personal lives. So, you know, I'm, I'm taking a sort of hand wavy, let's look 10 years out, um, but, but I certainly see, you know, significant growth opportunity, particularly in that data center segment. What do you think of the uh, management team? I, I've heard a lot of really good things about the CEO. Jen, I think it's Jensen Huang. Um, yes. Yep. He loves his leather jacket. That's his black turtleneck, <laughs> right? That's his Steve, you know, he has to have the specific clothing item, but no, that's not the important part. Yeah. What, what, what do you think of uh, him and the management team at NVIDIA? He's great. He's a, he's a bit of a rock star. You know, he founded the company. It's been his vision. Um, I've read an interview with him recently. I, I can't remember the exact words, but actually he never envisaged NVIDIA as being a gaming company. I think he always had grander aspirations. In some ways, they kind of stumbled into um, the fact that their hardware was optimized for AI and they got super lucky, I suppose, that suddenly, you know, AI is going to be the engine room of all commerce. So, you know, they've just found themselves in this fantastic sweet spot. Um, I do like that, um, 
you know, he's, he's loved by his staff. I think he's got like a fantastic glass door and comparably approval rating, something like a 98% CEO approval rating. Um, and uh, I think he owns something like three and a half percent of the company today. So, you know, it's a, it's a big company. That's quite a lot of money. You know, this is certainly his life's work. Um, there's actually an interesting relationship with AMD. I think, uh, I think Jensen might be um, the cousin of AMD's CEO, Lisa Su. So, you know, kind of all these guys are sort of tied together in some way. It's quite the family. Yeah, he yeah, does seem, right, yeah. yeah, he is, at least from the outside, seems maniacally focused on improving NVIDIA and he has been for decades. So it's kind of one of those where I don't even know if he had all, like, I don't know what the stake is worth, $20 billion. But even without that, it seems like he just wants to win in these markets really bad whenever you hear him talk. Yep, totally agree. Yep. All right, last question. Uh, it's one we try to ask all our interviewees. It's the pre-mortem. So what, how could this investment go poorly? Yeah, I guess we've, we've touched on a, a bunch of the big risks already. Um, I mean, probably the biggest one is just the fact they have this 12-month development life cycle. And maybe I hinted at it earlier, um, but uh, they, they've had a bit of a misstep with Taiwan Semi recently, it seems. This is all kind of reading between the lines a little bit. So, um, you know, they've, they've probably overestimated the demand for their current series of hardware and they've got too much supply. And I, I understand, I don't think this has been verified for sure, I understand they tried to cancel a bunch of orders with Taiwan Semi. There may have been a bit of a sort of back and forth negotiation and they've agreed that they'll postpone instead of canceling some of that kind of pipeline. So, you know, clearly they've made a bit of an error there and they're, you know, possibly that's going to kind of weigh down on inventory in the future. So, you know, even for a company like NVIDIA with the maturity, they can still get it wrong with a kind of, you know, demand supply equation. Um, probably the second risk we've touched on as well is competition. You know, there is this growing ecosystem of homegrown chip makers. Um, I, I've said, I've, I've taken the position that there's kind of room for everybody to win here. But, you know, if Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, Tesla, you know, if all the, all the big clouds, the hyperscalers do develop their own AI chips, well, that's a big chunk of that total addressable market that could get eaten up. Um, I happen to think that there is room for everybody to win, but that's certainly a risk we should bear in mind. Um, maybe a slightly more interesting one, which is relatively unique to a company like NVIDIA, is kind of AI ethics. You know, we're really early in the, uh, in the sort of life cycle of AI, and we don't really understand the impacts on society. And so, um, you know, NVIDIA are creating this capability, this capacity, if people are running maybe, you know, unethical uh, AI on NVIDIA hardware, well, that could be a reputational impact and, you know, could result perhaps in, um, you know, more stringent regulations, which could, you know, limit the market some way. Um, and then, you know, perhaps the biggest risk or, you know, maybe not that likely, but massive impact is um, this relationship with TSMC. You know, if it's true that Taiwan Semi are, are doing almost 100% of the manufacturing for NVIDIA, if things go bad, you know, they're going to be really bad. Um, but what we try to do at Seven Investing is we assign a risk rating. And so, you know, when I looked at all of that, my view of the risk rating with this was moderate risk as opposed to uh, low, high or very high. And I do think um, 
I do think there are risks, but I think the evaluation today is quite attractive. It's still an expensive company, clearly, um, but really, you know, with with every company becoming an AI company, I truly believe that um, Nvidia are positioned to to profit from that. Plus, you've got this fantastic call option with automotive, which could become, you know, potentially a, a multi hundred billion dollar market in itself. Right, and in their track record of top line growth has been absolutely fantastic since what when was the GPU it came out in 1999? I mean, it's, it's right. been amazing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yep, and, and very, very consistent. Yep. Any more questions? Okay, well, for uh, any any listeners that want to keep up with you, what's the best place to do that other than uh, Seven Investing, which, by the way, uh, I think we still have our, our code, which is it CCM? Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, I guess someone will hear an advertisement at some point, but code CCM, get $100 off. Yeah, that's still running. All right. Well, feel free to use that. But uh, for, for listeners that want to keep up with you, where's the best place to do that? Uh, best place to find me is on Twitter. So my handle is at seven, number seven, Luke Hallard. And what I'll do is once you guys tweet out this episode, I'll also tweet a link to our strong buy portfolio. So you've heard all about NVIDIA today, but there's actually two other companies we're kind of giving away the uh, the insight on. So Simon, our founders, released one of those already, and I'll tweet a link to that. And we've got the third one coming up from my co-advisor, Dana, in the next week or so. All right, perfect. Nice little tease to end there. <laughs> well, yeah, well, that's going to do it. Uh, we want to remind our listeners that Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners of Arch Capital, so clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Luke, for coming on the show. We'll see you next time. Thank you.